everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Caesar McDowell. He's the co-founder and CEO of Unite the People. Uh, welcome, Caesar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing well. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about your organization and what you guys are doing. Well, we're a nonprofit organization that promotes social justice throughout the United States, as well as provides affordable legal services to the underserved community here in the state of California. And uh, how long ago uh, was it founded? Uh, I started the organization with the help of my brother, Mitch McDowell. I started the organization from my prison cell, actually, uh, about six years ago in San Quentin State Prison. I used one of those, you know, the little phones you're not supposed to have, the cell phones. Um, but I used the cell phone. I created our first WordPress website. I built it right there on the cell phone in my cell, um, filed all of our articles of incorporation, Got everything up and going from the cell. My brother was uh, out in the, you know, in the real world, and he was the the feet in the face, helping get everything off the ground. And um, that's that's pretty much how we got started. Um, and and what prompted you uh, to want to do that? Well, while I was incarcerated, I went to prison. And, and, and I won't make it a long story because it kind of is, but I w- was sentenced to three life sentences for a nonviolent crime here in California. I had a, a ex-wife that I was married to. And uh, one day, I'll make that story quick. One day the police came to our house. Back then, if you come in contact for a parolee to come in contact with the police, you automatically go right back to prison. Then they have a hearing and okay, you didn't do nothing and they'll let you out. Well, I was there for about nine months. During that nine months, when I used to call home, I was a young guy, about 24 years old, 25 maybe. I would call home and to my neighbors, you know, hey buddy, yeah, I'll be out soon. You know, the regular young guy talk. And they used to always tell me like, hey man, the police are at your house all the time. So I was under the impression I was young. I'm thinking, hey, maybe they're building a case against me or something like that. And, you know, I just I, it didn't really register with me. So once I got home, I, I came home nine months later. Once I got home, all of the women in our neighborhood would try to date me. Now, I, I'm a fairly handsome guy, uh, especially back then. Right. And 
but not every woman, every single woman. And and I didn't, I would tell them, hey, you guys know I'm married. You know, she's just right there. It's my wife, right? And I, you know, I never really, really thought about it too much until one day I had a six-year-old son. He's about six or seven at the time. And I'm walking him out of the house to take him to school. I'm going to get, put him in the car and drive him to school. And there's a cop driving down my street. And my son sees the cop and says, hey, dad, look. There's the cop that spends the night with mommy every night while you were gone. Right. <laughs> so then it hit me like a ton of bricks. That's what everybody's been trying to tell me, but nobody actually said the words. You know, they're, they're you know, so when he says that, I take him to school. I come back home. My ex wife was home with, I had a two year old son also. She's home with my two year old son. And I come in the house and now I'm expecting her to say like, oh no, you're crazy. Like, of course not. Why? No, I never. So I bust in the house. Hey, you sleeping with this cop? And she just looks at me, just stares at me like a deer in the headlights, right? And I go off. I start throwing stuff around the house. Now there was never any physical abuse allegations. There was never nothing like that, but I, I am I am going off. You know, I'm cussing her out. I'm throwing stuff. I'm packing my stuff up to leave. So I do tell her, you know, and I'm is it all right to curse on here? I don't know. Um, uh, go ahead. Well, I tell her, I say, you know, bitch, I kill you for uh, sleeping with the cop that took me to prison. And I'm packing my stuff up. I, mean, I said a lot more things, but that was the actual threatening uh, statement I made. And as I'm leaving the house, she comes out with my two-year-old son in her arms and she knows, you know, I was raised with a really good upbringing, good, good parents, great father type thing, you know, so I wanted to be the same. Right. So she knew this. So she comes to the door holding my two-year-old. Like, oh, you're just going to leave your kids. And I tell her, bitch, get back in the house. And I get in my car and I leave. Well, they gave me three life sentences for that. They gave me a third strike life for saying, bitch, I will kill you. That was a terrorist threat. They gave me third strike life for false imprisonment when I said, bitch, get back in the house. They gave me a third strike life for child endangerment for having this argument in front of my two-year-old son. They said I wasn't worried about his welfare or well-being. Now, those are all misdemeanor charges. But because I had uh, prison in my past, because I went to prison when I was younger, they made them all life sentences. They gave me three life sentences. I did 20 straight years of that three life sentences. And during, during that time, that was when you were seeing a lot of the cops killing the kids on video every day on the news. And that, that was one of the things that kind of sparked, you know, the idea of creating something. We wanted to create an organization, give the people a platform where people could actually go to. We wanted to build something. We want to have two Unite the People offices in every state. We wanted to create an organization where it doesn't matter what it is, what community, whether it's LGBT, whether it's whether no matter what it is, if you have an issue and, you know, the government's not helping you, you could contact Unite the People. So that was the original idea when we started the organization but being where i was you immediately see the need for affordable representation like guys had no legal representation 
there's so many horror stories about, you know, guys that couldn't afford a lawyer. So the state would give them a lawyer and then just, I mean, sentence them so illegally that it's just crazy. You, you would never believe it until you read their paperwork. So speaking with my brother. Well, about one of the things I was going to ask you, I mean, because I, I hear what, what, what you're, what they got you on. Uh, where, where's your lawyer on this? Let, letting you get in for, for three life terms for that. Well, the whole time, the lawyers were more worried about money, right? They kept charging my brother, you know, every chance they got, uh, my brother and my grandmother paid 50,000 at first to my lawyer and then uh, another 40,000. Then after I got convicted, I had, uh, an appellate lawyer that came in and, uh, she charged what twenty one thousand. So I'm, oh no, he's he has a nonviolent. There's no way we're gonna let this ride. He's coming home. Give me another fourteen, and he's coming. Okay, now oh, we're almost ready. Give me another seven, another seven, and he's out of there. Then finally, at that point, she filed one opening brief in my appeal, and I never heard from the woman again. Right, and that's kind of what we wanted. You know, there's so many people with the same type stories. That's what we wanted to address. So uh, when I get to, I created the organization six years ago, right? We, we've been around for about six years now. Um, when I get to my 20th year, which was 2020, I, I've only been home now for about 12 months. And when I get to the 20th year, they tell me, hey, listen, uh, there's this new thing called Prop 57 for nonviolent three strikers. You could have a hearing. And then CDC tells me, oh, no, you don't qualify for the hearings. You, 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 your case was violent, even though it wasn't. So I had to have the lawyers at the organization I started, which CDC didn't know I started. And I had to have them. They fought for me to get a hearing. So I get approved to have that hearing. So then CDC, which is the California prison system, CDC says, well, you know what? Yeah, we're going to give you that hearing. But guess what? We're going to do a case review on you. We're going to do this case review. They're trying to find some reason not to let me have the hearing. So once we do, once they do the case review right before my release hearing or, or the hearing to maybe be released, they send me a letter and say, hey, Mr. McDowell, we're sorry. But 20 years ago, you were illegally sentenced. And if you would have had a lawyer review your case, they would have found this out 20 years ago. You maybe didn't have to do that 20 years of your life that you just did. So, you know, then, you know, that was crushing seeing that, you know, I had children during that time, the children we have grown apart. Um, we don't speak at all. You know what I mean? So it was a lot lost during that time, family members passing away. So I do have the I do get the release hearing and, and they, and they do let me go, but 20 years of my life is gone. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, let me put it this way. I do this a lot and talk to people about sentences like this and wrongful convictions. And I'm speechless at this point because it's like 20 years for that is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. The actual charge scene in California with the alternative sentences and the three strikes and the enhancements and everything that they have going, it's more about money. They get paid $88,000 a year per person. So any 
extra, you know, way they can give you extra time, they do it, right? Those charges were all misdemeanor charges. They didn't carry nothing but 16 months in prison at the most. And what county is this out of? Riverside County. Uh, Riverside, of course. Right. Um, and, and you end up in San Quentin of all places. Right, right. Well, um, I actually, I toured about half the prisons in the state of California, of course. And so I end up at San Quentin. And when I'm at San Quentin, that was when I guess maybe the, the, the maturity clock in my head changed and it went from like, man, this is messed up what they did to we got to do something about it. And if you keep waiting for somebody else to do it, it's never going to happen. If you if something's going to make a change, man, you have to get involved. So that's what we did. We started the organization. We did a, a initiative to change the three strikes law. It's called the People's Fair Sentencing and Public Safety Act of 2018. Uh, we were moving that towards the ballot. We didn't win with that. Um, we do a lot of policy work. We helped a lot of Senate bills get passed on the Senate floor. We, we have a pretty strong grassroots following of people because there's so many people here in California that's affected by the prison system and their sentencing schemes. Um, we, we actually wrote part of the California Budget Act of 2020. We helped Senator Nancy Skinner work, working with the governor's office and we got everyone three months off of their sentence due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That was back when no one thought it would be more than three to six months. Um, we pushed for more, of course, but they, they wouldn't give on that. But we got everyone in the state of California that uh, sentence reduction. We do a lot of, we, we, I mean, we do a lot of everything. We do a lot of community outreach. We work with the homeless, the homeless veterans. We do homeless kid drives. Um, we even in, in, in the city of Long Beach, where our office is located, we uh, the, we couldn't do an event due to COVID. So we just purchased everything ourselves, packed it up in the office, loaded up some trucks and spent the week with the whole team driving out and passing out uh, care packages of hoodies, sweaters, socks and all that. And uh, to the homeless people out here. So. Um... You know, it says that uh, you offer uh, affordable legal services. Um, so how does that uh, how does that work? If somebody wanted uh, to access you, what would they do? Well, they could call our 800 number, 888-245-9393, or they could go to our website, unitethepeople.org. And what we do is this, right? We saw you know, people, most people that's going to prison is, is your underserved communities. It's, it's the people that don't really have a lot of money, right? And they can't afford these top-notch lawyers. So what we wanted to do was put together a legal team of lawyers and, and, and law students. And we, we have about 20 to 25 people, staff that, that work in our office for us. And I, I like to say with us because you can see me sweeping, you know, the same as I'm the CEO. You can also come in and see me sweeping the floor and emptying trash, right? So it's really working with us. But um, what we did was we found lawyers that actually cared about people. And then we kind of made it our policy that we don't hire staff in the office unless they either currently or formally have an incarcerated loved one. We want them to understand what it's like so what, when you're helping the people, that you actually care. And then another thing we do, 
the average post-conviction case, like if you're trying to get back from prison or get your sentence reduced in the state of California, uh, on average, it starts around $20,000 and it, it goes 30, 40, 50, whatever it may be. What we do is we do the same exact things that these expensive law firms do, but we do it for about four to five times less. Like for example, a writ of habeas corpus. That's the vehicle that you know is most used to, to get your case back in court. At most firms, it start around 20,000 and they go up. We charge $3,500. And that gets them the same exact representation, the same exact everything but it also gets them an organization. It's not just one lawyer filing something so he can say, hey, I did it, give you, you know, I, I got the money now, we're good. It's actually people who care, or, you know, we brought in brought in a lawyer who, if you, his name is Muhammad Ali. If you Google his name, you'll see that in 2017, he was, uh, and I, I don't wanna say, was it for, whatever magazine it was, but he was rated in the top 100 most influential lawyers in, in the country. And that was somebody we wanted to hire because that was somebody who cared. You know, you can also find him online getting arrested, you know, out trying to help the homeless encampments. You see him in, you know, a little bit of everything. But that's what we do. We brought in a team of lawyers that weren't, you know, that of course, we have to pay them something. We don't have pro bono funding. So what we do is we bring in cases. We charge the clients really low fees. And the lawyers still make, you know, their salary. We pay the staff. It's enough to keep the lights on and keep helping people so that, you know, that's good enough for us. Um, so so kind of walk me through what a typical day is like for you, or is there a typical day? Um, a typical day for me normally starts around 530 in the morning. Uh, wake up around 5.30. I normally leave to the office around 6.37. And I get in and there's literally like nothing ever is the same. You know, every case is different. So there's different things that are needed. But um, get into the office. I'm normally there before the staff get in. Uh, start whether it's scanning papers uh, or bringing, you know, bringing up cases. Just Just learning. Again, I'm not the lawyer's. The lawyers work there, but there's different things that you want everybody to know. So, you know, I might go through researching bills or things like that. Then when everybody gets in, uh, just helping clients all day, all day. I normally, the end of the workday is normally around about between 10 and 11 p.m. I'll leave the office, go home, go to sleep, wake up the next day and do it again. Sounds familiar. Um, so, um, you know, I guess one of the interesting things, you know, we write a lot on, on some of the new laws, um, California, uh, last week, I guess the governor, uh, signed, uh, um, the budget bill and that included $18 million, uh, for, uh, a pilot project for resentencing under 1170D. And so I wrote an article on that, and I've been inundated uh, with uh, emails from people, most of them, uh, you know, wives of uh, incarcerated men, uh, trying to figure out how to access the services. Is that something that you guys would be working on? 
We work on that every single day. I can tell you everything about 1170, and it's not just D, it's 1170 D1, and it's a million 1170s. Um, one thing that, that you find where they say that they write something or did something for us, but you have to read this fine print. If it's not retroactive, then it doesn't really help us, the people that are incarcerated, right? And most bills that are written for prison reform, because of the union being so strong, the CDCR, the uh, union, CCPOA, by, by them being so strong, they have such a stronghold on the senators and congressmen that everybody's scared to mess with them. So what they do is they, they introduce a new bill but they make it non-retroactive. And what that means is it doesn't apply if you were if you were sentenced more than 120 days ago, or if you're not still on direct appeal, it doesn't apply to you. And so that's what they did with 1170 D1. 1170 D1 can only be submitted to the district attorney's office. Uh, that they, they expanded it, Brown, uh, Governor Brown, before he left, he expanded it to where it could be filed with the sheriff's department or you know the sheriff's department can make uh, a recommendation. CDCR can make a recommendation. But what they do is they make it to where you can't really access it unless the DA or the CDC contacts you guess the, unless they review your case and say, hey, listen, uh, we think you were over-sentenced and we want to bring your case in. But I'm going to tell you this, what a lot of people don't know is that you can request that same process from the district attorney's office without the 1170D1. You can do what they call like a request for resentencing. And, and what they do is it's the same thing, just like the 1170D1. You have to add all your support letters, your chronos. Um, I mean, like we do this every day, right? You, you create a package showing, you know, what the guys have done good and, and why they were incarcerated, family support, job support, if they were to be resentenced and released. And then um, you submit that to the district attorney's office as a request for resentencing. Now, they do have discretion to tell you, no, we're not looking at it because it's not an 1170 that we're doing. But some district attorney's office, we have gotten guys' cases back into court using the request for resentencing just because the way they modeled the 1170D1, it basically makes it only on them to do it. And, and you know, when is the last time CDC said, hey, we want to release a bunch of these guys, right? Yeah. Um, so... I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of formerly incarcerated and it seems like uh, everyone kind of has a story about, you know, there's kind of this moment where they're like, okay, you know what, bad stuff happened, but I got to get on with my life and, and kind of the light bulb comes on at some point. And, you know, what was it for you that kind of uh, got you from where you were 20 years ago to where you are now? Um, I don't know if there was an exact incident, but I would say that the police killing the kids in the streets, then watching the people riot and rally 
And then there was no organization that comes in and does nothing. When I was a kid, you always heard about the NAACP. Something goes wrong, contact them now. Well, I contacted NAACP office was literally right outside of my county jail cell. And I used to contact them daily and they would never even answer my call, right? I wanted to create an organization that was there for the people uh, after seeing those things. So I would say about six years ago, I would just lay there and be so frustrated. When you see it, you know what's going to happen. They're going to riot, rally, and then nobody's going to actually hold these DAs accountable to prosecute those officers for murdering the people. Then nobody ever holds the DAs accountable for the sentencing. Like a lot of people blame the police for the prison overcrowding. And that's not necessarily, yeah, that's where we get arrested at. But the root of the evil comes once you're locked up. Once, once you're incarcerated, for the DAs, it's just a game. It's like football. They don't necessarily care whether you did it or not. It's about getting you sentenced and getting you the most time possible. And the, the, way, that, the way that the community is for the DAs, right, within their, their, their own culture, it's a you-can't-be-an-inmate-lover culture type thing like they do that in cdc if you see a co and he's a cool co you'll literally hear another co walk up to him and be like oh why are you talking to those guys they're in, they're incarcerated or they call them inmates i just don't like using that word but they'll say why are you talking to those inmates oh you're an inmate lover and it just flashes back to me to the racist a uh, nigger lover statement right it just to me seems like one in the same but they both seem to have that culture so that's something that we wanted to start the organization to kind of disrupt. And, and we will get to that point. And we're growing pretty fast. We are opening an office in Philadelphia, like within the about next three to four months. And then after that, we're going to Ohio and Washington. So we're growing. We're going to get there. And, uh, you know, we hope to, by the time it's all said and done, become that organization that the people can go to when they feel they were wronged by the justice system. How did you go about educating yourself? I think prison did it. I, I don't think I necessarily did it. I mean, I went to, I got two college degrees while I was there. Um, I, I will have to say that I was a pretty, pretty sharp mentally type guy growing up. You know, I was pretty observant and, and understanding what's going on. But I just think all of those years in prison, kind of wakes you up to the reality of what's going on and what's really important. Like, the, you know, you know what I mean? So that's, that's what I think happened. Yeah. I just, you know, I note that you're incredibly well-spoken. So I was just kind of curious about that. Oh, hey, thank you, brother. You're incredibly well-spoken too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I didn't serve 20 years in prison. So <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, okay. Yeah, no, um, no, I get it. Um, but uh, yeah, so, I mean, from your perspective, what's the biggest problem in the system? The culture of I don't care. That's the biggest problem in the system. Nobody cares about guys that are incarcerated. I mean, I was speaking with, I'm not going to name this guy because I love him to death, great guy, and he was just telling the truth, but he was a chief of staff for one of the senator's offices that we're working with, 
And we were talking and we we're talking. And he said, man, well, you know what? You act like people give a damn about an inmate. Don't nobody care about an inmate. And while I was talking to him, I was currently an inmate. And I was like, what the hell? But really, he was just telling the truth when it comes to voting, when it comes to politics, when it comes to most things. Uh, an inmate falls less than an animal. You know, you, you'll get more support for for a pet. Lock a pet up in the cage wrong. Leave a pet in the car wrong. And, you'll, you know, they'll definitely wake you up to that. But lock a guy away for three life sentences for cursing in his living room uh, about a wife having an affair. And nobody cares. You know what I mean? Nobody. Yeah, no, I, you know, I experience this all the time. You know, in mm -hmm. fact... Um, when we published an article on uh, the pilot project in California, um, mm -hmm. you know, on 1170D, um, you know, people were like, why, why do you want to release all these criminals? And I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have been in there for a long time and really aren't a danger to anyone. Um, it, so there's this, this mindset that people have um, that, everybody who's been incarcerated is dangerous. And my right. experience at least is that most people incarcerated aren't, they've made some mistakes. Um, uh, a lot of them grow up uh, and, and they kind of move past those mistakes. And if they're given a second chance, they're not gonna mess up again. Right, for the most part, you see that, but you have to realize the way that a person in jail is vilified for the movies. You know, any movie you see of the prisons, you know, it's some big knives and killings and rapes and and really for the most part, like you said, for you you made a reference today that in my head I laughed when you said you ended up at San Quentin prison uh, out of everything. San Quentin is the nicest prison that you will ever see. San Quentin um it violence is very minimal. It's totally full of colleges and classes. They have two separate colleges that offer classes. There's a thousand different self-help groups. Like it's nothing but positive stuff all day, every day. Uh, they have programs where the outside prison ministry, Christian prison ministries come in and play basketball against the uh, guys that are incarcerated. The Golden State Warriors come in and play every year against the guys that are incarcerated. And... But when they told me, hey, we're transferring you to San Quentin, first thing in my mind was, okay, you have to become a killer now, right? That was the first thing I thought because that was all you see, that's all you hear was like, okay, well, now it's about to get real. And, you know, you're going to go in there and everybody's going to be stabbing you. You're going to stab everybody. And that's what you're thinking. And then when you get there, like literally a fight is frowned upon amongst the prisoners. Like, oh, fight, why would you fight? You know what I mean? And it's just a different culture. But for the communities, they don't know that. They think when you go to prison, like, oh, he must be, a, you know, I've had friends that didn't know my case that were married and their wives are 100% against me. Like, oh my God, he must have done something. But they didn't know the story, right? I was in prison, they didn't have a chance to talk to me. All they heard was Caesar went to prison for arguing or something with his wife. And 
they automatically think, man, that's just what the, what the thought process is, but that's not necessarily the truth. There's a lot of regular guys like your next door neighbor that you haven't seen in a while. Nine times out of 10, if he's black, Hispanic or broke, uh, no matter what the race, he might be in prison. You know what I mean? Maybe not nine times, but you know, quite often, man, you see guys in there like, Hey, do I remember you from high school? And you know what I mean? So, you know, that, that, that's what it is. But I, I think it's just uh, what the community sees you as. So how do we change that? I mean, how do, you know, because I don't see it being beneficial to either the people who are incarcerated or the ones that are get, getting out. I, I mean, that's part of the problem that I see is that, you know, we want people to uh, move along with their lives and be able to, you know, get jobs and not commit crimes. And then we make it impossible for them to get jobs and not commit crimes. <laughs> right. And just like one thing that we're doing right now, we're currently working with the company. They asked me not to name who they are, uh, why I don't know, but they're one of the biggest companies, I, if not in the United States, definitely in California, Northern California. And they've started a pilot program. And until they find out if the program is successful or not, they really don't want to, but they come to us to find people who are incarcerated coming home and they're starting an 18 month program. They get paid top pay, top benefits, go through this program to receive like an executive level position or at least a higher up position than just, you know, on the floor laborer type job. Uh, and, you know, they, they wanted to help create jobs for guys that are that were formerly incarcerated so they can take care of their families for real right so you don't have to come home and you know you're working in the back of a warehouse somewhere making you know half of minimum wage right but the way that we get that out there to answer your question the way that we get that out there is in the media you know the same thing that that we're trying to do at unite the people is educate the people a lot of people speak with me and not just speaking of myself, there's a lot of guys, but I'm going to just use me, for example. They say, you do not seem like someone who just did 20 years in prison. Right. Because that was the picture that they was they was given. Um, actually, it's a lot of guys in prison like me. You know, uh, there are some bad guys uh, that maybe should be there. Maybe CDC should learn to incorporate the guys that are incarcerated in the release of other guys that are incarcerated process, you know, maybe not tell them like, Hey, he's judging you too, but there are some guys that should stay in prison. To be honest, I, I can't say that there isn't, you know, I've met some guys that I go, wow, if I ever seen you in the real world, I would, you know, definitely be frightened for my family and neighbors and all of that. But that's very rare. That that's not, that's not the typical at all. That's maybe 10 to 15% of the prison population. The rest of them, guys just like me regular guys man that just made a mistake and went to prison yeah it, it seems like you know the public has this perception that everyone in prison's charles manson or you know right. hannibal lecter or something like that you know some crazy psychopath but the reality is that you know even people that commit violent crimes that you know there's all sorts of stuff going on you know from substance <laughs> abuse to mental health issues to just growing up in bad situations and having all this trauma, um, you know, and, and a lot of them, not everyone, but a lot of them, 
you know, at some point are able to kind of figure it out and uh, and find themselves. And right, you know, it's it's really cool actually, you know, to to meet some of these folks because you're like, yeah, these are just like everyone else. There's no reason to be uh, worried about them. Right, right. But again, that's definitely true. There, there's a lot of guys that. At the same way I said I've met guys that I would say shouldn't come. There's a lot of guys that I for instance, did you watch the movie Q Ball, the documentary at uh San Quentin Prison about the Golden State Warriors coming in and playing? It's a Kevin Durant documentary. No, and I didn't see that one. Yeah, it was on Netflix for two years. Now it just went off of Netflix. It's on uh SF uh, spots uh Fox Sports. And there's a guy in there, one of the, well, there's actually two guys. One is a guy named Alan Black, uh, Alan McIntosh is his name. And it's that the documentary kind of features three guys and two of two of them, I personally dealt with, well, all three I dealt with on a regular basis. But one of them is a guy that we're doing a campaign for right now called Operation Black. Uh, he was given 25 to life for possession of a firearm when he was in his early 20s. Now he's 47 years old, been in prison 24, 25 years, and they're still not letting him out. And it's a gun possession charge. And they feature him in the movie. And when everybody sees him, he's a big old, tall, really likable basketball player type guy. He's not, you know, he's not a violent dude at all. And, but, if you if, if you don't see him in Q, if you don't see him in the documentary and you just hear about this six foot five, six foot six black guy who's in prison with life, you would think he's a monster. And he's absolutely like totally the opposite. Right. Uh, the nicest cat. And then there's another guy who was sentenced to like one hundred and nine years for a thing he did when he was 16 years old. It was some type of gang thing. It was a bad thing for sure. But that is the most rehabilitated. His name is Anthony Ammons. He was just released. He just came home. He's also in the movie Cube Ball. And he's a close buddy of mine. But just being honest about the guy, he's the most rehabilitated guy I've ever met while I was incarcerated. Uh, I mean, he would do no wrong. Anything you'd, hey, Aunt, man, let's go do this real quick. Oh, no, absolutely not. That's wrong. And I'm going to group. But, uh, you know, it helped the guy, you know what I mean? And, and, and honestly, if if he was my neighbor babysitting my child, I'd be comfortable with it. Like, so they do have those guys in there, too, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, uh, I, I agree. Uh, I just I just think there's got to be a way to kind of communicate that to the public so that, you know, anytime they hear that people are being released from prison, they don't go into this cold sweat panic. You have to educate them. It has to be seen in the media. That movie Cue Ball was a great vehicle, but there just has to be more things. There has to be community events where they're out talking to the large events, not just a community event with 10 people in a, in a, in a, in a church, you know, small room. It needs to be something seen on TV and in, 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 in the media. People to see just regular guys like, man, OK, wait, maybe everybody. I, I tell you this. While I was in San Quentin, San Quentin is notorious for its name. They bring tours through there all the time. Like every day there's groups of people just walking through the prison, looking in the cells. Uh, and 
one thing that you find talking to these people when they're leaving, you'll ask them like, hey, what's the biggest thing you noticed when you came here? Number one, their number one comment always is, wow, it's a lot of blacks in here. Like San Quentin is almost like 85% black, right? Um, and I might be off by a few numbers, but it's a lot of black people. That's the first thing I noticed when I got there. Like, oh, okay, here's where all the black people are. But then the, and that's just, and I'm a black person as well, but that's just, you know, what it is. And then the second thing they tell you is, you guys seem like regular people. We thought when we came in here, it was going to be monsters and all the rest of that, but that you hear that, those two things the most that, wow, we did not know that, you know, the regular guys in our neighborhoods are in here too. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, um, but, uh, you know, what would you tell people who uh, want to help or get involved? Uh, how can they do that? How can they help your organization? They can contact us again at 888-245-9393 and ask to speak with Caesar or Mitch McDowell. That's my brother who co-founded the organization. They could go on our website. There's a button that says contact us. They could contact us and say, hey, I want to get involved in somehow, some way. And, 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 and I know we're almost out of time, but that's something that you hear a lot as well is I don't know how to get involved. You know, I really want to help, but what should I do? Just contact us and whether it's community work, you want to go out in the community and work, whether you want to donate to help people that are less fortunate than yourself, uh, be able to afford legal services, like even with our low fees, we get a lot of people, man. There's been times where I have donated my check. You know, I lived 20 years on top ramens and tunas. So, you know, there'd be a nice lady, old lady come in. She wants to help her kid. They just don't have the money. I would say, you know, it will just take my check and give it to her. I'll go 30 days. I'll get some top ramens. And I've literally have done that a few months since I've been home. So if, if people want to donate, they could go to our website and hit the donate button. And all, all donations that come in to unite the people go strictly to helping the people that can't afford our legal services be able to, to get those services. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing really your incredible story, both personal and your organization's uh, success. Six years is not a long time, and you guys have made tremendous progress. Absolutely, brother. Well, I definitely appreciate it. I thank you guys for having me on. And, you know, who knows, man, maybe one day we'll be able to, you know, educate the whole population on, on, on what the truth is, man. So, but definitely appreciate you. Thank you very much. And, you know, hopefully speak with you guys again. That was Caesar McDowell. He is uh, the co-founder of Unite the People, uh, a great organization that helps uh, offer affordable legal services. And you just heard a whole lot more uh, and helps to promote uh, social justice and policy change, which is desperately needed in California. And he's gonna be heading, uh, their organization is headed to Philadelphia, uh, which uh, should be an interesting uh, uh, endeavor uh, on their part. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>